Welcome to Unbossed, it is Adrian Lawrence, I'm filling again. And again for the wonderful Senator Nita Turner. And today we have a heck of a show for you. We're gonna be talking about injustices going on as far as migrant children and them being put to work, even though we know that it violates child labor laws. Also, more labor issues as far as Starbucks goes. And then, of course, Elon Musk up to some antics. Something we'd expect, but something I definitely also hope to expect is that you subscribe, also share the stream and send your love in the comments because I'm gonna wanna read them in our breaks. Also joined today, I am glad that I have with my by my side, excuse me, Ravana, contributor for Rebel HQ. Hey, what's up? Hi, thanks so much for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to the show. Lots of good stories, even if it's bad news, important to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely, we gotta raise our voices because that's incredibly important for the progressive agenda. And it's also incredibly important that we ensure that migrant children are safe. And the Biden administration now says it's going to up its efforts in that regard. And that it says now it's gonna be cracking down on the labor exploitation specifically of migrant children. Now this announcement, it comes on the heels of a shocking New York Times investigation revealing that businesses across the United States are exploiting unaccompanied minors who had to flee their homeland. And as we'll see with this headline here that came from the New York Times expose that led to this Biden administration announcement, alone and exploited migrant children work brutal jobs across the US. Yes, some children as young as 13 were found to be working physically grueling and demanding jobs. But before we jump into what the administration says it's going to do, let's go ahead and look at the problem here. Also from the New York Times. In just the past two years, more than 250,000 children have come into the country alone. Many of them are under tremendous pressure to send money back to their parents, as well as pay thousands of dollars in smuggling fees, and in some cases, rent and living expenses to their sponsors. Most are from Central America, where economic conditions have deteriorated since the pandemic. Now, these practices definitely flout child labor laws. We know that without question. And these laws have been in place for more than a century. But there are these organizations, these companies, including some big brand names that are reportedly involved. Children now are working hazardous jobs in every state and across industries, making products in the American supply chains of major brands and retailers, including J. Crew, Walmart, Target, Ben and Jerry's, Fruit of the Loom, Ford, and General Motors, the Times found. They are finding jobs in slaughterhouses, construction sites, and factories, positions that have long been off limits to American children. Now, one of the children, a 15-year-old Carolina Yuck, well, she came to the United States on her own last year to live with a relative that she had never met before. And this is what she said to the Times. Sometimes I get tired and feel sick. Her stomach often hurt and she was unaware or unsure if that was because of the lack of sleep, the stress from the incessant roar of the machines or the worries she had for herself and her family in Guatemala. But I'm getting used to it. Yeah, it's estimated that about two thirds of all unaccompanied migrant children, they end up working full time. And these are not children who have stolen into the country undetected. The federal government knows they are in the United States and the Department of Health and Human Services is responsible for ensuring sponsors will support them and protect them from trafficking or exploitation. But as more and more children have arrived, the Biden, the Biden White House has ramped up demands on staffers to move the children quickly out of shelters and release them to adults. Caseworkers say they rush through vetting sponsors. And clearly this rushing through vetting sponsors is enabling these children to end up in the hands of taskmasters, basically exploiting their labor, you know, having them work hours and hours at a time, but also work in environments that are not safe and that they shouldn't be in because they're children. This is appalling, especially seeing so many household brand names on that list that are benefiting from exploiting migrant children's labor, Ravana. Yeah, I think that quote that you read from Carolina Yock is particularly devastating because she ended it by saying, but I'm getting used to it. And no child, nowhere in the world should be getting used to doing that type of grueling manual labor. That is absolutely devastating. And on top of that, I think this is a huge indictment of the concept of unfettered capitalism. There's this idea among conservatives who promote 
unregulated capitalism that the market will do what's best. But here we have these massive brands, these companies that almost everybody uses, you said household brands, it's exactly it. And they are willing to exploit child labor, children as young as 13 years old to cut costs. And that's what why they're doing this. And if they think that they can get away with it, if they think that there'll be no oversight or no accountability, that they will continue doing it, which is why it's so important for the government to step in in these cases, which is what the Biden administration has said it's going to do. And I hope it's successful. I do too, and I also hope that individuals will hold these brands accountable. I know that seeing some of those names up there, some of them weren't shocking, like Walmart, I almost assumed. But then when you see Ben and Jerry's, it's known as being a very progressive company that's always at the forefront of putting out statements when people were afraid to back Black Lives Matter as a as truly a movement, Ben and Jerry's had no problem saying white supremacy in its statement. It really seemed like they were on the progressive edge, but now it makes me wonder what are people doing truly when you pull back the curtain? Is this child exploitation and labor of these migrant children, is this something that everybody dabbles in? Or is this something that only a few major companies? I, I definitely would like to know. And I'd also like to know what the Biden administration is doing to actually address this issue. And so let's go ahead and look at what they've announced that they plan on doing in terms of making changes. So on Monday, senior administration officials said health and human services would now direct operators to return calls to children and also require them to explain what local law enforcement agency would be in touch. Department staff members will also give more information to sponsors and underage migrants about child labor protections. I, I just got a pause right there and say, really? So y'all weren't returning their calls and you're gonna act like this is some kind of monumental landmark change that you're making in terms of we're gonna you know, return their calls and maybe tell them that people are gonna exploit them and give them the knowledge and information so that they don't end up in the hands of these exploitative companies. Like, give me a break, that should have been done a long time ago. It should have been kind of the baseline you know, expectations that I would have had of the government. Rayvonne, do you wanna get on on this? Yeah, I mean, I. I worked in immigration law for a little bit and it's not surprising to me at all. They really don't care that much, especially about the children that go through the immigration system. But massively disappointing, massively disappointing that they would even have to come out and say, we're going to start at the very least start listening to the complaints being made by these migrants. Yeah, that's just that is absolutely wild to me. And to be honest, I'd be extremely embarrassed. I wouldn't have put that stuff out there. But it almost tells you somebody else would have. Um, but it also tells you that these children were probably complaining a lot before the New York Times put out this expose. Uh, it's just the government wasn't listening. But let's go ahead and get back to the other promises the government makes uh, promises to make in terms of change. So as part of the effort, the Department of Labor will focus investigations on geographical areas where tips about violations rarely come in. Migrant children are among the least likely workers to reach out to labor inspectors for help with workplace issues. The department also will explore using a hot goods provision of law that allows it to stop the interstate transportation of goods where child labor has been found in the supply chain, according to senior administration officials. In addition, it will ask Congress to increase penalties for violators. Federal investigators have long complained that the maximum fine for child labor violations, which is 15,000 per occurrence, is not enough to deter child labor. Wow. This is just like, it just keeps telling you and showing you the shortcomings that were already in place and why this is so rampant in terms of exploiting these migrant children. Because when you have $15,000 violations, like get out of here. That's not even a drop in the bucket for Walmart, Target, all of these major companies. And so of course it would be worthwhile for them to go ahead and violate these child labor laws and exploit these migrant children since really, It's not even going to make a dent in any form or fashion on their books whatsoever. The thing about these migrant children also being taken advantage of is the fact that we are living in a time where we're seeing a lot of nations try to recover from the pandemic and the hurt. As we heard, a lot of these children are coming up from South America as they struggle to come back from the pandemic. But also when we cross the waters over there toward Europe, toward the Middle East, we're also seeing 
a lot of fleeing as well. And we had just seen this past weekend with news that at least 59 migrants from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and Iran, including 12 children died. And also dozens more are feared to be missing after their boat sank in rough seas off southern Italy. The reality here is that we are seeing so many exodus out there, people fleeing for help and going to places that they hope will be better for them, only to find situations where they could potentially lose their life or they are being mistreated and and truly exploited in favor of capitalism. And that's not how we should be treating human beings in any way, Ravana. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just add that the immigration system within the United States has shown you know, it could you could consider it an indifference towards, or I would see it more as a malice towards children who are immigrating alone. Children as young as three years old are expected to alone go through the immigration process, go through the court system. Judges have argued that they could adequately explain to a three-year-old the ramifications of the immigration process. It's it's absurd, but so often you'll see. You know, children being forced to go through this process alone. They're given very little education on how the system works, what their rights are. So we'll see also people who are afraid to even report the injustices that they're experiencing because they're fearful that it could have an impact on their immigration status or ultimately result in them getting deported, which I think is important in this case because we're talking about children who are sending money back home to their families. There's a lot at stake for them if they think that they're going to be deported or if something's going to impede their ability to help support their family, they're not going to come forward and report it. So even the number of reports that they've been getting so far about this type of abuse of children in the working world, it's going to be severely undercounted because there's going to be so many children that either don't know where to report this injustice to or children who are too afraid to come forward and say that they are the victims of it. Absolutely, and especially those who may not even know that this is wrong, even though the adults Clearly, these companies, those in positions of power are well aware. They have to be because this is not just injustice, it's inhumane to be exploiting children that are this young, this small and forcing them to work for hours on end in grueling environments that are threatening their health. Nobody can tell me that they didn't know. Everybody had to have known in this situation that this is completely and totally unacceptable. And I truly hope these individuals are held accountable. And I would like to see a lot more than civil fines. I think there should be criminal fines without a doubt. Human trafficking, whatever needs to be logged as, it's completely and totally in need of being prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And speaking of the law, more labor union issues. And of course, this is with Starbucks. And before we jump on the story, well, we know Starbucks is constantly union busting. And it's so much such that an Italian coffee house worker called out the outgoing CEO, Howard Schultz. Watch this. My name is Alessandro, and I work for an Italian coffee house here in Milan. I am a member of a union, PKCGL, and I know that unions are an important part of the Italian coffee house experience. I have heard that our shoots try to murder Starbucks after the Italian coffee house. I have also heard that our shoots is retaliating against US workers who are trying to unionize and defend their rights. I feel, I feel so sad and so bad that Howard Schultz is trying to bust the union in the US because this is not how we do things here in the Italian coffee shop. Howard Schultz and Starbucks, it's time to respect your workers' right to form a union. Ah, here, here, I totally agree. It is time to respect the unionization of your employees. But unfortunately, until the courts get on board in terms of backing the laws that should protect these employees, we're not necessarily going to see these companies do what they should be doing. And we saw a legal opinion come down last week that seemed to be absolutely wonderful for Starbucks employees. Early last week, a Michigan federal judge had banned Starbucks from firing any US worker seeking to unionize. That's huge. That was a big win and a big break. But unfortunately, it seemed to be short lived. But a few days later, the judge, Mark A. Goldsmith, announced that he had made certain unspecified errors and withdrew his earlier injunction. On Thursday, Judge Goldsmith issued a new injunction, only this time it was limited to a store in Michigan where a worker said she had been fired for her involvement in union organizing. The injunction's national scope had vanished. 
Absolutely, it was right there within Starbucks employees grasp and it was snatched back by that judge. And in the revised opinion that accompanied the new order that came down on Thursday, well, Judge Goldsmith said that the key criterion for determining whether to impose a national injunction was whether the company had pursued a general policy of violating labor laws. And he said that while the National Labor Relations Board had filed about 24 complaints involving roughly 50 workers fired by Starbucks across the country, many of those cases were in their early stages. So simply because those cases hadn't moved forward far enough, the judge did not wanna go ahead and slap an injunction on Starbucks to prevent it from firing anybody who wanted to engage in unionized activity, which seems to be what the law is supposed to be anyways, but you know how it is. Well, as a result, Judge Goldsmith concluded that the evidence supported only that injunction in that Ann Arbor, Michigan store. And that ruling, well, it, it changed a lot, it had a big impact. Legal experts say that the original injunction would have allowed the labor board to seek expedited reinstatement of workers who had been fired at any of the roughly 9,000 corporate owned Starbucks stores in the country. And that it could have led to fines if the court found that Starbucks was continuing to fire workers for union organizing. Now, while Starbucks, of course, was pleased with the court flipping and flopping on the initial ruling, well, now with this curbed ruling, Workers United, well, they said they're just going to keep up their energy. We will continue to fight for a national remedy to address Starbucks unprecedented union busting campaign and hold the company accountable for their actions. Yes, accountability is incredibly important. And we definitely need to have what that whole judicial branch also on board to holding Starbucks and also very large companies accountable when they engage in union busting activity. Ravana. Yeah, we've seen Starbucks retaliate against unionization efforts and fire employees who are leading the efforts in their chains to form a union. You know, essentially with impunity, they've been firing these employees. And that original ruling, the more hardy ruling, would have actually, you know, it would have been a, a firm ruling. It, it would have been something at least to incentivize Starbucks to you know, cease its union busting activities to some extent. And it would have given the employees who were retaliated against the ability to get their jobs back. And now this more reserved, you know, ruling the scaling back of the ruling. It's really just sort of a slap on the wrist in this one case. It's not gonna have a major impact, but it's important that the more perfect union and the Starbucks employees are gonna continue the fight. I'll also say, I like that we highlighted the video of the Italian coffee house workers because a lot of times we'll just Discuss the disparities between the income of, you know, service workers in Europe versus service workers in the United States, and the primary factor that they have better jobs, better benefits, better working conditions is because of the unionization rate of workers in Europe. We can just look at McDonald's; they make twenty-three dollars an hour is the bare minimum that they make in, I believe, it's Denmark. And that's not because they have a high minimum wage there, it's because they have unions and the unions have fought to get the workers those benefits. So unionization is really the best way to represent the workers interests. So it's important that this fight continues. Absolutely, we see so many nations across the globe where they have such strong union power and presence that they get to uphold that right to live at wages that'll actually sustain an actual living. Yet here in the United States, it's really our culture and our push for individuality, individualism that makes us so inclined not to see the value of coming together as one source and fighting for the collective good. It's really unfortunate to be honest, because we have all the tools necessary to improve our lifestyles, our living conditions and opportunities for a better tomorrow. But at the same time, when we're still holding on to this mentality of I, I, I as opposed to we, that's when we all lose. But you all will win because there is more Unbossed coming back right after this. Welcome back to Unboss. It's Adrian Lawrence filling in for Miss Nina Turner. And there's something exciting going on right after Unbossed. Yeah, I think it's the watch list. Yes, so J.R. Jackson is sharing his takes on the stories that you really need to be paying attention to. We're talking news, politics, culture, current events, sports, and so much more on the watch list. And you can check it out after Unbossed. Subscribe to the show and watch it live daily, 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific at YouTube slash watchlist TYT. Also, definitely. 
do not forget to support and watch Unbossed every day. You know, it's generally seen Senator Nina Serna who's gonna be bringing you these stories and she does it exceptionally. And she's also gonna bring you everything you need to know on what really matters, power, corruption, justice, and the lack of it. Also, you can scan the QR code and listen to full episodes of Unbossed with Nina Turner on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget the progress report. That's right, if you haven't already, subscribe to TYT's weekday morning newsletter. And yeah, every morning, that is amazing. You're gonna get the best progressive news analysis and reporting. You can also scan the QR code or sign up at tyt.com slash newsletter. And let's check out some of the comments, which y'all got to say. First up, TYT members. At tyt.com, Mickey saying, always happy to see you, Adrian. It is wonderful to see you too, even though I can't see you, but still, it's great. On Twitch, Rosa says, woo, love Adrian, love you too, oodles. And also on YouTube, we're talking super chat. Well, Rick says, Adrian is one of my favorite TYT contributors, paired up with Ravana. Awesome. Thank you all for your work and legacy. Thank you, Rick. Gotta love all that positive energy. It is definitely much needed right here in our studios, whether they're home or away, but also it is very much needed out there in the Middle East. Because this weekend, it really marked a landmark moment for peace, but it was also coupled with unsettling exchanges of violence. Watch this. Now, what you just saw was a group of Israeli settlers who entered the West Bank town of Hawara, burning at least 15 Palestinian homes and a number of cars. And this rampage, well, it came in response to a Palestinian fatally shooting two Israelis some hours before. Now, 2023 has been a violent year in the West Bank. Since the start of the year, more than 60 Palestinians, militants and civilians have been killed by Israeli forces. And on the Israeli side, 13 people have been killed in attacks, all civilians except for a paramilitary police officer. And as the violence raged over the weekend, well, Israeli and Palestinian leaders were actually working together in Jordan. Check out this headline. Israelis and Palestinians meet for talks on how to de-escalate recent wave of attacks. Now this from the BBC News. The summit in the Red Sea Resort of Aqaba was called following a recent rise in deadly violence that has stoked fears of a wider conflict. It brought together Israeli and Palestinian security chiefs for the first time in many years. And the US President's top Middle East advisor, Brett McGurk, was also present. Now the summit's official statement that came out was somewhat, I guess um, it, it was worthy in terms of giving hope uh, because maybe there is a chance for actually settling the conflict there. This statement, it read this, the two sides, Palestinian and Israeli affirmed their commitment to all previous agreements between them and work towards a just and lasting peace. They reaffirmed the necessity of committing to de-escalation on the ground and to prevent further violence. It also said that they had agreed to preserve the status quo at a contested Jerusalem holy site. And that Israel had agreed to halt new settlement approvals in the occupied West Bank for four to six months. It also said both sides agreed to support confidence building steps and to meet again next month in Egypt. Now that sounds like um, something that we can all kind of hold some faith in and hopefully it would move toward having an actual resolution. Ravana, what are your thoughts? I would like to be optimistic about it, but honestly, considering the Israeli government employs people who compare Palestinians to animals and, and continuously make statements about how eventually there will be no more Palestinians in the area and the entire region will be Israel. It, you know, and continue to elevate those people into positions of power and they have authority. I, it just doesn't give me a great deal of hope that this will accomplish anything. Not to mention that the, they're only pausing new settlements for four to six months. I mean, these settlements, you know, the sort of obscure what it really is. They are forcibly removing people from their homes, you know, moving into their homes, kicking them out. It, I mean, it's a really 
horrific situation what's going on there. I would love to see a resolution. I would love to see no more violence, but you know, it's it, until we see that action being put into place and continuing to see these, you know, you know, objectively racist individuals employed within the Israeli government, I, I have a difficult time seeing that outcome. Yeah, I think that a lot of people would probably join you on that, especially because we have both sides, at least some representatives from both sides saying, no dice, we're gonna keep it up. That's right, not everybody was on board. Hamas criticized the meeting and justified the earlier fatal shooting of the two Israeli men, according to the Associated Press. Hamas called Sunday's shooting a natural reaction to Israeli incursions into Palestinian areas of the West Bank and resulting deaths. The resistance in the West Bank will remain present and growing and no plan or summit will be able to stop it, said spokesman Hazem Kassim. Also, Israel too pledged to continue fighting Palestinians in the West Bank and moving forward with settlement construction. Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, forgive me, I'm butchering these, but the leader of the far right grouping in Benjamin Netanyahu's governing coalition said, there will not be a freeze on construction and development in the settlement, not even for one day. He added that the Israel Defense Forces IDF will continue to act to counter terrorism without limitations. And that pretty much communicates to me that as much as yeah, there's going to be some efforts to quell the conflict at the same time, not everybody is equally invested in that on both sides. And until that happens, until that's the case, I don't necessarily see there being you know, an end to the violence. I'd like to hope that there will be less violence, but at the same time, I just am not getting the feeling that it is settled. Any other thoughts, Ravana? Yeah, I just think that Israel will continue to act with impunity in regards to what I believe to be a genocide in Palestine, as long as it continues to receive support from countries like its its biggest allies, the United States, who have shown an, a complete unwillingness to hold them accountable for their actions. Even when the IDF murdered an American journalist in Palestine, they were unwilling to call out the IDF or the Israeli government more largely. So it's really gonna, and the United States sent a representative to these meetings, but if they wanna show that they're serious, they need to show Israel ramifications. And it just doesn't look like that's going to happen. But that would, in my my opinion, be the best case scenario. If the United States finally put a firm foot down and stopped, you know, continuous support for Israel while you know pretending to disagree with the actions that it's committing. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, so I went to Israel uh, as members of the, for, um, the former government had invited me over who are progressive members trying to work on anti-racism and anti-discrimination. And so during my time there, uh, I had the good fortune to meet with so many incredible progressive minds and former members of government. And there were a group of Israeli journalists who are pro-Palestinian there and they had no qualms, no issues saying the US needs to step up and sanction Israel. This is a problem. And the thing is, it's that you know there were people at the table who were somewhat shocked that they were so open in that regard. But it's like if you've been paying attention, especially in reading a lot of the Israeli publications and the media there, they are not on board with a lot of this stuff. And that would be consistent with a number of the people I met there in terms of saying this is a problem and essentially the US needs to stand up. I do very much sympathize with a lot of the Israelis by virtue of the fact that it felt very similar to the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump thing, where it's like the vote was practically split where you have half of the nation not wanting this behavior, not wanting this direction. And yet you are stuck with your horse hitched to this cart, unfortunately. And so seeing them take to the streets and rise up, I think is probably one of the strongest things that they can do. And hopefully you know, the US will actually step up and do what it needs to do. I just don't necessarily know that it has the courage to make that happen. Any final thoughts, Ravana? No, I think you said it all. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to somebody who needs to say a little bit more in terms of student loans. That's right, the Biden student loan debt battle, it seems to be reaching new levels. And the question is, is the administration as passionate behind its efforts to pay off the student loans of many of us as it initially said? Watch this. 
Back here in the US and what could be a pivotal week for millions of Americans waiting for word on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The Supreme Court will hear arguments in two key legal challenges that could undermine the administration's efforts to relieve student debt. Yes, that's right. The importance of this case, it really cannot be underscored. And that's in part because it reaches so many marginalized lives who would benefit from having their student loans vanquished. All right, so this from the Washington Post. So Tuesday's oral argument, well, they bring together a string of combustible issues. An ambitious program aimed at fulfilling a campaign promise for Biden's political base, heightened suspicion by the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority about the ability of federal agencies to act without specific congressional authorization and the power of Republican led states to use the judiciary to stop a president's priorities before they even take effect. Now, Republican leaders have long expressed their opposition to forgiving student loan debt. Michael T. Hilgers, well, that is Nebraska's attorney general. And he wrote the following in a brief that was filed on behalf of his state and five other GOP led states. Canceling hundreds of billions of dollars in student loans through a decree that extends to nearly all borrowers is a breathtaking assertion of power. Yeah, breathtaking is interesting because I'd say the same thing about the reach of those PPP loans that were not really paid off. Um, but hey, those are just my thoughts. Uh, we also know that Education Secretary Miguel Cardona has pushed back against the assertion from these GOP led states that forgiving student loan debt is an abuse of power. This also for the Washington Post. Cardona says the administration has the authority to forgive student loan debt under the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003. It allows the secretary to waive or modify loan provisions in response to a national emergency. In this case, the coronavirus pandemic. Now, Cardona proposed a plan that would eliminate up to $10,000 of student debt for borrowers earning up to $125,000 annually or up to $250,000 for married couples. Those who received Pell Grants, a form of financial aid for low and middle income students are eligible for an additional $10,000 in forgiveness. About 20 million borrowers could see their balances wiped clean. That is huge. There are so many people out there that really, really could benefit from them. From having those student loans wiped away. Let's talk about those people. Student loan debt forgiveness, well, it would benefit more than 40% of borrowers could have their student debt wiped out entirely. Most of the student debt relief will flow to lower income Americans. About eight in 10 black student borrowers may qualify for $20,000 of forgiveness. And borrowers with low debt, no degree will get a clean slate. That is huge. Before we jump to the Supreme Court, Ravana, I wanna get your thoughts because when I just think of how much of a burden that this is going to take off of the shoulders of societies generally most marginalized of groups, I would really, really advocate for this. And I would hope that the rest of the nation would as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm someone who would be receiving the $20,000 of forgiveness. I was a Pell Grant recipient. An undergrad, I have a lot of student loan debt because of law school. This would change my life. Having $20,000 of my student loans forgiven would change my life. And for most of the people who would be receiving it, it would change theirs as well. So the level at which the Republicans are having this conversation, pretending that we're forgiving the debt of people who went to medical school and are now you know, very high salary doctors or lawyers, it's just not true. Particularly coming from like the law school side of things, I wanna practice public interest law. I'm not going to be an attorney who's making a six, even a six figure salary. And I think that having these student loan burdens push a lot of people out of going into those careers where they're you know, in public service, where they're helping people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to get that kind of help. So the ramifications of having the student debt are massive. I will also say that it's really disappointing that Biden hasn't taken a firmer stance on this because one of the lawsuits, which I'm sure we'll be about to get into, is from a woman who's suing because she doesn't qualify for student loan forgiveness. So all he would have to do to make that case moot would be to forgive all student loan debt, period. That and immediately, there's no more lawsuits. She, I mean, there's already tepid standing in these cases regardless, but she would have no basis to sue at all if he did that. So if he would just come out stronger on these issues, then we could you know, at least get to the heart of them. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, having that conservative majority on the Supreme Court really puts Biden in the position where the administration is facing an uphill battle. This also for the post. 
But the administration's track record at the court fortified in recent years with justices nominated by President Donald Trump, who are more conservative than their successors, is not encouraging for the president. Many experts believe the administration's best chance in the student loan plan is to convince the court that neither the Republican-led states nor two individuals in a separate case from Texas have legal standing to challenge the initiative. Such a conclusion would relieve the court of having to rule on the merits of the case. Absolutely, if you can get it out on procedural grounds, that would be huge and so incredibly easy. Because as Ravana had mentioned, at least one of the people, it's a matter of them saying, well, they don't qualify. And because you have to have standing a legitimate cause of action to actually have an action in a case, if the government can prove that these individuals don't have one, that would be wonderful. Ravana. I would like to imagine a world where the Supreme Court, you know, cares and demonstrates a level of care towards procedural, you know, the procedure in and of itself, but standing particularly seems to have just gone out of the window with this conservative majority. And what we have is we have it six of the nine justices who are bought and sold by the Federalist Society, who are going to make decisions, you know, essentially based on what the Federalist Society's agenda is. And it's really disappointing because, you know, they have so much power in this country. And I think a lot of times when we're discussing politics, not at TYT, but, you know, out in the world, people forget to talk about the how crucial the judiciary is to even what Congress is able to do, what the president is able to do, and the constraints they put on the progress we're able to make. Um, I always refer to them to our nine unelected wizards because there are very little checks and balances on the judiciary. So I think that they'll make a decision. However, you know, their ideology dictates they want to make this decision. Ideally, I would like to see them throw these cases out for standing because they don't have that and it's necessary to bring a case. But I'm gonna keep my expectations low because the Supreme Court has has not demonstrated to me that they have you know a level of care for the rule of law. No, they haven't shown this that in any form or fashion. They definitely seem to like to maintain the status quo in terms of ensuring that certain groups stay with the government's what knee on their neck, so to speak. It's a fact that a lot of these GOP led states are fighting against having student loans forgiven because they know that it would help bolster those who are in the lower classes, who are struggling economically, predominantly those black and brown people out there. And so these GOP led states, they do not wanna see that happen. You know, We have a capitalistic society and a racist society and a sexist society, and they prefer to maintain the hierarchies and the position they are in. Which is why when anybody steps out of line and dares to rise above, they will go the extra distance to try to push you down, to beat you down. And so this potential opportunity to have our student loans forgiven, to give us that little extra leg up so we have greater access to opportunities is not something that the right is willing to allow for. So I assume that they are going to continue to push to fight. And I just wonder when the Supreme Court's conservative bench is actually truly gonna seek its teeth into this. And it may be in this particular instance, but let's hope not. But we have plenty more to speak about, especially some interesting things blowing up at Fox News. I'll see you after this break. Welcome back to Unboss, it is Adrian Lawrence and I have more for you. Yes, but before we get to it, I know you all gotta watch the watch list. Of course, yes, check out J.R. Jackson. He is gonna give you the deets on everything. And that's every day, well weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. You gotta get J.R.'s takes, news, politics, cultures, current events, and so much more. YouTube.com slash watchlisttyt. Also, you definitely got to hit up the Unbossed Podcast. Yes, that's right. The corrupt powers that rule this nation, they are hard at work, but it's all right because Senator Nina Turner is working even harder on Unbossed. That's right. You can scan this QR code to listen to full episodes of Unbossed with Nina Turner on Apple Podcasts. And of course, I hope you have signed up for the progress report. That's right. Get your progressive news every weekday morning. Get that newsletter. The progress report, it will show up in your inbox if you scan that QR code or go ahead and sign up at tyt.com slash newsletter. And now to some of the great comments y'all got from me at tyt.com for the members. Well, Vicki says, for God's sakes, Biden, forgive the entire debt executive order here. Use my pen. That would be nice. I'm sure the Republicans would still very much challenge it, but hey, 
I would like that if he could just use his pen, much like some kind of wand if he were a wizard. On Twitch, OctoSquiddle says, real nice how when it comes to forgiving student debt, government can never seem to find a way. But when it comes to forgiveness for corporations that exploded the world economy, the government's tripping over themselves to forgive and forget that debt. Ain't that true? It's so interesting where we can find the money when a certain group wants it. Always interesting. Also, the interesting things from the super chat on YouTube. Well, Jay says, unfortunately, the SC Supreme Court will strike it down. Yep. Biden should have advocated for this when they had both chambers of Congress. Indeed, that would have been great, but I'm sure we would have found one of those Dems who isn't really a Dem getting in the way. And speaking of people who are getting in the way, well, Dominion voting may be getting in the way with Fox News's little corrupt antics. Yes, that billion dollar defamation lawsuit filed Dominion voting. Well, it's heating up, yeah. Because in a massive filing, the voting machine company revealed that Fox hosts and executives knew that the election fraud claims were not true, but continued to promote them on TV. And the thing is, no host is safe in these filings. The tea has been spilled, this per CNN. A cache of behind the scenes messages included in the legal filing showed Fox Corp chairman Rupert Murdoch called Trump's claims really crazy stuff. And the cable network stars, including Tucker Carlson, John Hannity, Laura Ingram, brutally mocked the lies being pushed by the former president's camp, asserting that the election was rigged. Now the right wing channel chimed in in the filings and said Fox News accused Dominion of generating noise and confusion. Adding the core of this case remains about freedom of the press and freedom of speech, which are fundamental rights afforded by the Constitution and protected by New York Times, the Sullivan, of course, Fox News forgot there's no freedom to lie. But they went ahead and said this, Dominion has mischaracterized the record, cherry picked quotes stripped of key context and spilled considerable ink on facts that are irrelevant under black letter principles of defamation law. The network said their motion for summary judgment takes an extreme and unsupported view of defamation law and rests on an accounting of the facts that has no basis in the record. Now, attorneys said that Dominion's filings showed that it had built a powerful case against Fox, which definitely seems to be the case. And if you know they get that summary judgment ruling, it could be pretty good in terms of definitely knowing that they committed defamation and just having a jury decide how much it should be worth in terms of the loss to Dominion voting. But we'll have to see what the judge said. But we do know right now that the filing, it definitely seemed to show that there were some you know, cracks in the system in terms of fact checking the election lies. On one occasion, Tucker Carlson demanded that Fox News's White House correspondent, Jackie Heinrich, be fired after she fact checked a Trump tweet pushing election fraud claims. Check out this tweet here if you remember it. So former President Trump had quoted an OAN report accusing Dominion of deleting votes nationwide. And then the correspondent Heinrich went ahead and quote tweeted it and added that truth. Saying Dominion voting and top election infrastructure officials categorically deny this. The November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. There's no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Now, according to messages obtained by Dominion, Tucker Carlson told Sean Hannity, please get her fired. Seriously, what the F? I'm actually shocked. It needs to stop immediately, like today. I'm not surprised that behind the scenes they tried to come for this woman simply because she told the truth. Just like we see when people cross that thin blue line, when they cross from what Tucker Carlson's line or these lies, essentially they can no longer be part of the group because that's what it's all about. Whether it's true or not, it's staying together. Ravana. I'm actually surprised that Fox News didn't try to settle this case much earlier on now because they've opened themselves up to discovery and allowed Dominion to, you know, peek around in their, you know, backroom affairs and also which opens that up to the public because the filings are public. We can receive these, you know, records. So it, I would have thought it would have been in their best interest to try to take care of this early on. But I could also see Dominion not really wanting to settle this case because just taking a, you know, a financial settlement wouldn't you know, repair the damage that's been done to their ref, uh, their reputation, excuse me. And it has been severe. I mean, Fox News viewers, you know, other, you know, Newsmax, OAN also was involved in cease and desist letters from Dominion. But, you know, their viewers believe that this voting, you know, system stole the election, that it was fraudulent. 
and the damage to their reputation is severe, it'll be lasting. So I could see on their end why they would want to take this all the way to arguments in front of a judge and litigation. But I mean, Fox News, in my opinion, is screwed. Like the evidence against them is tremendous. Just from these initial filings, we can see that. I really don't see how they have a snowball's chance in hell of winning this lawsuit. No, I agree with you. Um, I also remember when the lawsuit was filed, I didn't think either party would settle for the reasons you've noted in terms of Dominion voting wouldn't settle because I'd rather roll the dice and see what kind of billions of dollars come out. But also, I don't think Fox News would settle even though they know they're wrong. And that's because it's a defamation lawsuit and it could it could open you up to other potential lawsuits for all of the sketchy things that you had done in the past. And you don't wanna get a reputation for being willing to go out there and correct your mistakes the legal process, so you have to pretend to have this stronghold and that we're gonna stand by everything we did, even though so much trash, dirt, skeletons are gonna come out of the closet. And also it's gonna hit those shareholders, cuz I think there's gonna be a shareholder loot or suit that's gonna file or gonna follow this tongue tied. But I really, really see this as being lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. And even after they actually get a verdict here for Dominion voting, uh, you know, it'll be appeal after appeal after appeal. Uh, but these people aren't going to back down. As we know, legal fees are tax deductible, and Fox got a lot of money. Uh, somebody else who, well, doesn't really have as much money as you would assume. Um, what, the cartoonist for Dilbert, as you may have heard over the weekend, he got himself into some racist antics. Watch this. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Um, sounds very much like something I would hear at a Klan rally. Uh, and that happens to be Scott Adams. He was a cartoonist that created the comic Dilbert that was running in a number of, pol- of publications nationwide. And well, according to the Washington Post, he decided to go on YouTube with that rant. Uh, and let's talk about the poll that Adams was referring to. So the once widely celebrated Adams who had been entertaining extreme right ideologies and conspiracy theories for several years was upset Wednesday by a Rasmussen poll that found a thin majority of black Americans agreed with the statement that it's okay to be white, a phrase sometimes associated with racist memes. And Adams of course didn't stop there. He also went off on more tirades about it, which we won't even bother and you can go ahead and check them out online. But I can tell you that it was utterly disgusting and also Adams really messed around and found out what the consequences are of his racism. So the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today Network and hundreds of newspapers were among publications that announced that they would stop publishing Dilbert after Adam's racist rant. And asked on Saturday how many newspapers still carried the strip, which is a workplace satire he had created in 1989. Adams told the Post by Monday around zero. I don't know, that sounds like too many to me. But I think Adams is getting his just desserts for his just absolutely racist and ignorant YouTube display of shenanigans. Ravana. I'll say I'm actually surprised that it took this long for his comic to be discontinued in so many publications because Scott Adams has been on my radar as like a right wing character for a while with the outlandish, racist, transphobic things, sexist things he's been saying very publicly on his Twitter. The crazy things he's been saying. One time he tweeted out that he killed his stepson. I mean, this man is unhinged. He's been unhinged for a long time. I'm glad that they're not going to be publishing his comic anymore. But it does concern me that it took this long considering how bigoted and how you know far right he's been in public for how long he's been doing it. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think that they would categorize that as white male privilege because anybody else probably would have been you know, capped at the knees long ago. It just also shows you that individuals who may not necessarily register on these large global maps in terms of their racism, their right wingism, that they'll eventually get there. And so I would hold these publications accountable as in you knew who he was. If Ravana knew, a lot of people knew that there was something you know, a little bit off about this man in terms of equity, inclusion, equality. And for him to come out with 
this like criticism based on this very right wing poll. I think it only looked at or interviewed maybe a thousand people in toto and then asking black people if it's okay to be white based on which we know is associated with a racist meme. It's like, come on, this man did not care one way or the other. He was looking for an excuse to go ahead and advance segregation. Any final thoughts, Ravana? Yeah, I also just want to add that he doubled down on Twitter after this because you mentioned like a white man can imagine experiencing consequences. So his reaction, of course, is to think he's done nothing wrong. And in one of those tweets, he claimed that he previously identified as being black for a period of his life, which I mean, you can see his picture on the screen. I mean, this man has lost his mind. But he also mentioned that he'd been fired twice in the past for racist remarks and racism. So I mean, this is someone who really should not have and before he was making Dilbert. So, you know, this is someone who has a long history of racism, right wing bigotry, and I'd be so glad to see him go from public life and from the media. Absolutely. I'm sure maybe the clan will have some kind of publication. He can do cartoons there. Until then, he will continue to be a cartoon to me. But I am sad to see you go, Ravana. Can you please tell the guests where they can find more of your work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Um, everyone can see my videos every day for Rebel HQ on YouTube and Facebook. And you can stay up to date with what I'm doing and projects I'm working on on Twitter at Ravana TTV. Awesome. And I'm Adrian Lawrence and you can catch me on Rebel HQ as well. And also I just published my first video in some time, which details my Israel delegation experience and also my conclusion as to whether their anti-racism and also desegregation programs will work. Definitely check it out. You are going to learn some new things. In the meantime, Nina Turner will be back at some time soon. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening to Unbossed. If you like the show, then you'll enjoy our other podcasts on TYT Network like The Damage Report with John Iderola, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and The Young Turks. Make sure to listen and follow, and if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating.